Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday morning. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio, joined by my good friend Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Hey, Rick. How are you? Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Well, no, actually, you would have if it was last week and it was the marathon, you would have missed it. I would have missed it for that thing. You would not have found a way here. No, that's that's true, and not because I was running the marathon. Uh, Well, now, why not? You seem like you could do a marathon. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I've never run a marathon. Really? No. Well, it's a marathon. I thought about it. Have you really? I thought deeply about it. No, one, you're, one, you're, no, yeah. you're kidding me. No, one day, like about seven years ago, <laughs> for a brief moment <laughs> right. in time, right. it was it was a brief <laughs> passing moment in time. It was fleeting. Yeah, I bet it was. But, but in my mind, not with I your finished. feet. Yeah, I broke four. I I, I broke a four minute mile. Four minute mile. Yeah, for twenty six yeah. miles. Congratulations! Thank you. In your in, mind. In my mind. Okay, so now you've defeated the qualification purposes for talking about anything else for the rest of this hour. <laughs> now we're going to talk more substantive issues, and in fact, um, Jason's been very kind that after we've had these democratic debates, I think he even did a pre-debate. Uh, visit here uh, to kind of take a look at where the candidates stand Um, and uh, I want to play uh, just kind of a mash cut here of of some of the uh, I won't say highlights some of the rhetoric I'm not sure there were any highlights. There were highlights. Well, well, Let's, okay, okay. yeah, we're right. on, on the other side. I know, but right? as a, as a friend of mine told me, uh, he understands that the Republican National Committee now is willing to fund every Democratic <laughs> debate, as, and they have one every. They have to have one every week because of the success that the Democrats are doing. To That's themselves. payback for 2016. <laughs> no kidding. No <laughs> and, kidding. And all of their debates. Indeed, indeed. But I want to start here. This is kind of a. Uh, a bit of highs and perhaps lows from the last debate. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you have not said that. And I think we owe it to the American people to tell them where we're going to send the invoice. I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me that on this subject of what should be the rules around corporate responsibility for these big tech companies, when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account, that you did not agree. Senator Warren said we can't be running any vague campaigns. We've got to level with people. We've got to level with people and tell them exactly what we're going to do, how we're going to get it done, and if you can get it done. But I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Make it clear that they're not going anywhere and have them protect it and work my way back toward what, in fact, needs to be done protecting those Kurds. They lost their lives. This is shameful, shameful what this man has done. The slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand. When we think our only choices are between endless war or total isolation, the consequence is the Thank disappearance you, of U.S. leadership from the world stage, Senator. and that makes this entire world a more dangerous place. What does the president do? He says, I believe Vladimir Putin. I believe Vladimir Putin. I don't believe our He's intelligence committee. Of Vladimir no, no, Putin. I'm not. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> Women have been given the responsibility 
to perpetuate the human species. Our bodies were created to do that. And it does not give any other person the right to tell a woman what to do with that body. It is her body. It is her right. It is her decision. We codify Roe v. Wade. The public is already there. Things have changed. That's right. When I proposed reforming the Supreme Court, some folks said that was too bold to even contemplate. Now, I'm not talking about packing the court just with people who agree with me, although I certainly will appoint people who share my values. For example, the idea that women's reproductive freedom is an American right. Uh, In my judgment, Trump is the most corrupt president in the history of this country. This president, and I agree with Bernie, Senator Sanders, is the most corrupt president in modern history, and I think all of our history. Our framers imagined this moment, a moment where we would have a corrupt president. And our framers then rightly designed our system of democracy to say there will be checks and balances. This is one of those moments. And we'll close there with uh, Kamala Harris. Um, I have to say... I I didn't find much in this other than maybe the overall kind of theme of the attacks on Elizabeth Warren as as kind of an acknowledgement that now she has uh, perhaps even and has in some polls superseded uh, Joe Biden and the attacks came on her as you heard at the beginning. Biden was not so much the subject of of the attack, and I wonder if that represents kind of a diminishing uh, viewpoint that or that his his standing in the polls has diminished, that, that he's no longer the the candidate, the front runner that the others are trying to go after. Well, the rule of thumb is always you want to try to put an arrow on somebody whose balloon is rising, and that's that's definitely, I mean, from a tactical standpoint in terms of debate preparation, and that certainly has been worn, and Biden has been slipping back. I mean, if you look at, there was a poll a couple of weeks ago, the CNN, or the CBS USA Today poll that had a three-way tie in first place, place in Iowa, Sanders, Warren, and Biden. This week, there was uh, the Emerson poll that had Biden knotted up with Warren in Iowa with uh, Buttigieg third and Sanders kind of floating back to fourth. So I think that's reflective in what happened the other night. I would depart, though. I think the first hour of the, the debate was illustrative in terms of how the candidates see each other, but also substantively. I think it was a, a good debate, once again, often being centered on the health care issue, which health care plan is going to work, which writ large health care system is going to be better. We're going to see more of that. I thought once we got beyond the first hour, the candidates had spent a lot of time and their ammunition at that point. And I thought the second hour was borderline incomprehensible from a viewer perspective. Uh, And the third hour was too, although strangely, it was the last half hour where I thought Joe Biden was actually the most effective. The point where nobody's watching. Yes, but he was as vigorous as he had been, which perhaps speaks well to his overall vigor, you know, into the 90th minute of the debate. But he and Warren and Sanders were going back and forth at the end once again about whose plans made sense on health care. It sort of circled back to that. And I thought that Biden was strangely effective at the end because he was less rhetorical. He simply was just pointing out what the cost was and using, a, I would argue, a common sense pocketbook approach. You just have to figure out how to pay for it and tell us how to pay for it. Now, there may be answers to that. There are answers to that, I suspect. But 
I thought in terms of framing the issue, that was about as effective as he was throughout the evening. So I guess I would say first hour, informative and combative in a positive way. Second hour, a wash. Third hour, vaguely helpful to voters. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. And have a have a text message saying we haven't heard a question from Ron yet today. What do you, what should we do about that? I think we should probably ask Ron. Welcome to the show. What's your question, Ron? No, good, good, good morning, Rick. Uh, my, my question to your guest: uh, The president is pretty much indicated he's going to run on what's perceived as a strong economy, which is typically a, a good position for a sitting president. Uh, what will be the main issue? that the Democrats can um, galvanize behind. I still think that it's, it's, it's health care, but could it possibly be just something that's going on in the Middle East? Or, you know, that's it. But that's the main question. What can they get to galvanize the voters behind? Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Well, Ron, I suppose, first of all, you're right about health care. Um, and if we look at the 2018 midterms, that was a major issue for Democrats to run on there. Not simply what kind of health care plan they're proposing, but rather what the Republicans are proposing about the health care that currently exists, pre-existing conditions and, and, and the like. So that is still, if you, if, if you look at polls around the country, that's still an issue that galvanizes people and is important. But the economy comes first in most polls. And so it's going to be an argument about what kind of economy we actually have and what kind of economy we're going to have going forward. So it's not so much what's happening in the economy based on certain measures it's who's it working for and that's where you're going to have arguments about who's gotten the bulk of the tax cuts who's gotten the relief who's carrying the burdens what's happening income inequality growth, income inequality i think those issues will be primary issues on the foreign policy stuff i think that'll merge into much larger arguments about what's happening to america on the world stage and what america looks like on the world stage and so that's where events this week i think tie into those themes as well but where does that fall as far as a voter concern i think lower it's one of those things that seems more important when there's in the immediacy in the immediacy the act if there's an imminent crisis right so arguments about making america less safe i think people get that intellectually you know if they if they're told look if we abandon this area in northern Syria, ISIS comes back in, that makes America less safe. People understand that, I think, intellectually, but viscerally and emotionally, that doesn't resonate quite as strongly unless there is an attack. So what wins out the commitment to, uh, as Trump says, to, to remove troops from Syria? But... Well, I think a way to understand most of what Donald Trump does... <laughs> is through the prism of the 7 to 9 million voters who voted for Barack Obama and also voted for Donald Trump. And I think for those voters, the 7 to 9 million voters estimated across the country who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump in 2016, important issues are issues involving trade, immigration, removing America from foreign conflicts because those are people who don't deserve our help as much as our own people deserve our help. This would be kind of the worldview. And if you think about every issue that Trump has tried to own in some way over the past couple of years, trade and tariffs, immigration and the wall, and quote-unquote, removing our troops from foreign conflicts. Of course, these troops are not 
being removed from abroad. They're actually being moved right. to Western Iraq. Um, I think those actions are taken with purely political purposes in mind so that you can you can easily then go back in 2020 and run based on all of those principles. High tariffs supposedly are better for American industries. That would be the argument. It's certainly an argument that would be made to people who reside within the communities where a lot of these industries once were stronger. Uh, immigration, uh, you know, we build the wall, and again, we, we preserve American jobs, so the argument would go. So to me, these are a constellation of policies that are built around an electoral strategy, and that strategy is to continue to win those voters because those are the voters that guarantee you, at least in theory, the 11,000 additional votes you needed to win Michigan last time around, the 23,000 votes you needed to win Wisconsin, the 44,000 votes you needed to win Pennsylvania. And he's aware of that because in each of those states, in Wisconsin, despite what happened in 2016 and 2018, Tony Evers was elected governor by about 0.4%. In Michigan, the Democrats flipped two House seats in 2018. In Pennsylvania, the Democrats flipped four House seats. These states are very much still in play. So each of those issues becomes wedge issues that are crucial for winning in 2020. But they're very close on the margins. Though. Close on the margins, and that's the point, right? we got these close margins in 2016. We've got Democrats striking back in 2018. These things are very much in flux and in play for 2020, these states. Going back to the debate uh, stage, are we? do you think we're, we're down to like four candidates? As far as, you know, I, I kind of look at uh, Biden and Pete Buttigieg as kind of the more moderate part of the of the Democrats. And then, I you know, I look at Warren and uh, Bernie as the more progressive side. Are we are, are, is it too is it too much to say where the field is that limited right now? I think out of 19 correct. candidates. I think you're correct. If we look back at, for example, 2008, in particular fall of 2007, at this point in 2007, the top three were the top three. You had Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards. Now, their order would change around between this period in 2007 and all the way through South Carolina uh, in that primary cycle. But those top three were set. This time around, you've got more or less this top three of Sanders and Warren and Biden. But as I said, even in the polling, as as near as a week ago, Buttigieg had moved up to fourth, and he was at 14%, only nine points behind the other three. Let's talk more about Pete Buttigieg when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. This is your Sunday Spin. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Here in the WGN Skyline studio with my good friend Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Uh, Just wanted to uh, play a couple of cuts on uh, Friday. Uh, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, was on the southwest side at a meet-and-greet where he was endorsing uh, Marie Newman, who's the primary challenger to Congressman Dan Lipinski, uh, doing a meet-and-greet, taking lots of selfies. Had a chance to try to ask him a question, but he interrupted me. You come across in the debates as kind of a unifier. Um, 
You have a great, you have a great radio voice. I actually do radio. I was about to say I do radio on Sunday. You're always welcome on my show. I would, I would love to do that. Like you're not a print journalist. You're a radio voice. Thank you very much. Yeah, I am actually a print journalist too, and uh, but I'm going to hold him up on this that he said he would uh, do the show. But I finally got a chance to ask the question. You come across on the stage as, as kind of a unifier and, and don't adopt the Donald Trump lines and that kind of thing. Is that enough to create a great differentiation or pitch to, to voters? Look, I, I think people are going to look at the totality of who I am. I'm a guy that rose in a tough inner city. Uh, literally a documentary about me called Street Fight, about how I fought my way to transform in a city. How in Washington, in the, in the midst of broken D.C., got big bills done, like the criminal justice reform bill. So I think when people see who I am, but but I've always tell people, whether it's in Washington or in Newark, that we need to create uncommon coalitions to create uncommon results. We can't rip ourselves apart as a country. Uh, when I play football, I knew we were going to score a touchdown when I heard the defensive huddle arguing amongst themselves. I'd be like, we're going to score. Well, we have a global competition going on, and our team can't be ripping itself and tearing itself down. We did big things in this country, from going to the moon to beating the Nazis, when we pulled together, created new American coalitions. If we're going to beat climate change, if we're going to transform our country to be a nation where healthcare is a right for all, these take bigger mobilizations and partisan mobilizations. And so my running, I caution Democrats, we cannot define ourselves by what we're against. We need to start talking about what we're for. We can't even define ourselves in the partisan terms that we're to beat Republicans. No, it's just a moral moment that requires us to unite Americans in common cause and common purpose so that we can deal with the big justice issues that we're facing and seize the opportunity in the 21st century. He's certainly a senator. <laughs> He's definitely a senator. I think he was simply stunned by the power of your radio voice. And it sent him reeling, where he could not, he, he just couldn't answer the question succinctly. Well, as, as a good friend of mine said, he, at least he didn't say he had a face for radio. And I said, well, he is a politician after all. He's, no. been a, he's been a good performer in the debates, but he sounded a lot of those notes that you're talking about there. And the same thing kind of happened, right? We, we sort of listened to the answer. It seemed moderately compelling, but it didn't seem very pointy in the sense that it jumped out. And that's been him in a lot of these settings. That's why a lot of people think, well, he's really running for vice president. That's really what he's right. doing. Right, or, or is, is, it's like a resume kind of thing is, is you know, for down the road. Maybe, but, but here's something else to think about. In that poll that I referenced earlier, which was the CBS USA Today poll from about a week ago, which in political life can seem like a year ago, when they asked Iowa voters in that poll what was important to them about a candidate running for president in the Democratic primary, Democratic primary voters, 97% of them said a candidate that can unify people. We think of the Democratic electorate as being fed up, angry possessing visceral outrage and it's true but if you ask them they will at least say we want somebody that will unify he's making somewhat of a bet on that so is Buttigieg right all of the themes that Buttigieg is striking in his opening statements to the extent there are any in these debates and if you listen to his performance on Tuesday night was kind of funneling up all of these answers to the idea of we have to be able to resume the country as we know it in a unified way after Trump is gone. So although, although you know, in some respects, he's trying to have it both ways because he's he's like, well, people talk about returning to normal. There is no normal anymore. 
But where he's where departing from somebody like Biden, for example, is that Biden is saying Trump is the problem. Buttigieg is saying Trump is a symptom of the problem, which is what Warren is saying, too. And this is the other point that I think is really important about this primary. Before the break, Rick, you asked about four candidates, two who are more moderate at this point, Biden and Buttigieg, two who are more progressive, Warren and Sanders. I think broadly stated that's true. But if you dig a little deeper into the numbers, you see some interesting things. You see, for example, in Iowa, if you average out polls over the past couple of months, Elizabeth Warren leads in among progressives. She gets about 37%, but she's also second among those who classify themselves in the Democratic primary as moderate or conservative Democrats. She gets 20% of the vote. She's not fourth or fifth or sixth. She's second among those voters. She's a second choice. And on the flip side, Pete Buttigieg, if you look at the Emerson poll that came out this week, he is pulling 16% of the voters who voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016, 16%. Bernie Sanders is only pulling 19% of those voters. He only has 3% more of the people who voted for him in 2016 than than the so-called moderate Buttigieg. So I think it's much more fluid in Iowa as between what we perceive from the outside as these two lanes of progressive and moderate. I think Democratic primary voters, yes, largely fall along those lines. If you go onto Twitter, they definitely fall along those lines. But I think if you go out to Democrats as a whole, it's much more nuanced than that in terms of who they're looking for. But it's part of that, perhaps, Iowa itself, because, I mean, it's not uh, what I would wildly describe as, as a progressive state, among or a progressive Democratic Okay, state. but then you go to the early map and the states that are in play. Iowa is, is New Hampshire that liberal of a state? Probably not. If you look at South Carolina, African-American voters who are lined up at this point, they're not lined up with the most progressive candidate, Warren or Sanders. They're lined up with Biden. He's more of the moderate candidate. Maybe Nevada, um, although it's such a strong union state, it's, it's hard to know exactly which way that would cut also. So if you look at the early states that give oxygen to campaigns, if you do well there, uh, it seems much more fluid to me in terms of where these candidates are are actually going and where they're pulling support from. Obviously, again, we we touch on this a, a lot of attention given to the health care issue, and I mean Warren's inability to say whether the middle class would be taxed, uh, which uh, Sand- Bernie Sanders has already acknowledged that it, they would be under his plan. Um, but you know, kind of. Also coming to that fine line about uh, Medicare for all and private insurance. And I think we know where the lines are on who is what. So why do we have to keep revisiting this issue over again? I think it's useful to revisit it. I I know those of us who watch these debates regularly think, oh, we've covered this already, but not everybody watches every single debate. And I actually think the debate has gotten more refined as we've gone along. I think the candidates... Well, I definitely, on on health care, yes. On on that issue, I think Klobuchar, who had a very good night on Tuesday night, and Buttigieg were more pointed in their critique, which pointed a sharper light on the issues of not only how to pay for it, but what the cost is going to be. And I think what Klobuchar and Buttigieg did on Tuesday night was they bridged a problem that John Delaney, the late, great John Delaney, we might say, (laughs) had earlier on when he had called 
made many of the same complaints to Warren and have really been smacked down very effectively by Warren. And it's always difficult, I think, when you are proposing something that seems more moderate to seem bold. Right. And Delaney looked very much timid right. in that exchange. And I think what the more moderates did the other night was they were just more vigorous in the critique, and that made it a much sharper contrast, but also didn't make it sound like what they were for was more timid. Now, the flip side is also true. Warren is a very effective debater. She was under siege all the time on Tuesday night and more or less held in there pretty well. She's going to have similar critiques to the so-called public option. I mean, what does a world with the public option actually look like? Are insurance companies just going to wither away? Because that is what Buttigieg is arguing, that eventually he calls it a, a glide path to Medicare for all is by having the public option. Well, what does that process actually look like? Do private insurance companies simply wither away? Do they charge higher premiums to the people who decide they're going to stay on private health insurance? I don't think we know the answers to that. And I'm not taking a position on that here today. What I am saying, though, is as a matter of debate, I think there's a further debate to have through rhetorical tactics, using language to paint a picture of what the future is going to look like. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And now I think Bernie and Warren have a chance to come back and lodge similar complaints against uh, Pete, Biden, and Amy Klobuchar. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joined here in the WGN Skyline studio by Jason DeSanto, my good friend, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. We were talking about the Democratic debates, but I want to switch subjects here in just the final few minutes we have. Uh, The death of uh, Elijah Cummings, uh, head of the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, um, and and quite a, a pillar uh, in in the house and uh, other than the president's uh, condolence message uh, I, I do think that the condolence messages of a number of house republicans were indeed uh came from the heart i think he was a very respected member of the body and somebody who served with distinction and also with passion for the people that he represented you can't ask for much more than that what does this do about impeachment since oversight was one of the three committees that is part of the impeachment inquiry uh, of Donald Trump? I think there's a little bit of a question about who's going to fill the spot, um, and that arguably could slow things down, but a lot of the activity has moved away from the oversight committee also. Well, it's Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee. And so um, it it shouldn't slow anything down. I, I doubt that it will. But we are starting to get into the question of what is the timetable here. And I know Pelosi's gotten a lot of uh, questions about that. And the Speaker has said the timetable is governed by the Constitution, not by politics. We're not concerned about going into 2020. We're concerned about making sure this is done correctly. I think broadly stated that's true. Um, But I think there are some questions about what it's going to look like if we have the middle of an impeachment inquiry into the early part of next year, which I think at this point is likely to be the timetable. Just back to Elijah Cummings, I'm I'm almost of the feeling that he's not going to get the due uh, attention that he's deserved because we're in this atmosphere of impeachment. Yes and no. I mean, Rick, I did see some 
people saying that one of the last things he did, he was sick for a while, was he signed subpoenas to be issued related to the investigation. So as it is in so many things, after somebody passes, the question is, what do their life mean? What do they stand for? That's really what a eulogy is about from a speech perspective. And so people come to represent something. They come to stand for something. And I think the people who are friends of his, people who were allies of his, people who really respected him, will come to make the argument that this is proceeding and making sure that no one is above the law is something that he believed in. And so we're doing something that's consistent with what he lived for and what he thought was most important. So I think in that way, he can be honored through their actions, and they'll say as much. Do you believe impeachment should roll into 2020 and be, be guided by the Constitution, as Pelosi says, or the feeling that people want some action at least uh, by Thanksgiving time? Impeachment is a funny animal. It's Isn't a, it? It's, it, it's it, a legal it's concept. A, it's a camel. It's a <laughs> It's 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 designed by committee. It is a it is a multi-humped creature. Yes. I think what we really have here is we have something which is within the constitution but has a a, a clearly political dimension to it because you have public representatives who are doing the voting, you have people in the Senate who are going to decide whether or not to convict to convict, so it's a hybrid. Whether or not it is something that is genuine, I think Pelosi is correct that it should be governed by whatever it is that is uncovered, and the ability to ventilate those issues. And when you have people marching down from the State Department against the wishes of the administration to testify about the concerns that they had, that is the process, in my view, working as it should. Facts are being adduced, they are being assembled, and from that there will be a set of charges. That said, I think Schiff has been very clear with the Democratic conference that to some extent the best evidence is the evidence that's the most public, which is the transcript of a call that Trump had with the Ukrainians. So what we have here is... Not to mention Mick Mulvaney speaking in the White House press room. Yeah. So you kind of have this situation where what's public is very damaging, but you have all these other people who've dedicated their lives to foreign service uh, coming forward and saying... This is not the way foreign policy is is to be conducted. And we definitely were told to work through Rudy Giuliani, who is not an employee of the United States government, let alone the State Department. Um, it's what about as far as Republican complaints about this? These interviews are being done behind closed doors and, and they're, they, they, they want transparency. They, let alone they want a floor vote. To yeah, I mean, them. I mean, they have people there. Uh There is some reticence to take a vote on the Democratic side to have a full inquiry because the Speaker doesn't want to put into jeopardy people who are in districts where that might be difficult for them to take the vote. If you look at the polling among the public, the public is now over 50%, about 52%, if you average all the polls, I think, uh, saying that the inquiry is well-founded. A little less than 50, if you average the polls on whether Trump should be removed, those numbers are about even, 49, 48 on the inquiry in swing districts. So it's a much closer proposition. She wants to protect those people. But you could also say the opposite, that you would put Republicans on the spot to have to take a vote on whether or not there should be an inquiry. Politically, I think that would be useful 
at this point. That's Jason DeSanto, my good friend, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Jason, as always, thank you. And uh, I suppose we'll be talking again after the next Democratic debate. Thanks, Rick. Enjoyed it.